Hey there, I'm Lucas Fitz. If you know me, you know two things to be true. I love a good pair of denim, and I'm always here for the stories. When I first got into the heritage goods movement and buying intentionally, I looked to American Field as an industry leader in connecting cool brands to cool consumers. There's nothing better than hearing the story behind how a big idea grew into a business. Now, we're bringing it online and inviting you to join in the conversation, whether you're watching or listening along from wherever you call home. I'll be hosting these fireside chats, intimate, personal looks at the inner workings of some of our favorite brands on our AF network. So, sit down, grab a whiskey or coffee or beer, and ride along as we shine the spotlight on real people and real stories. This is AF Fireside. Today's episode is brought to you by the Dairy Block, a vibrant, walkable micro-district in the heart of lower downtown Denver. Experience the Front Range's most inspiring retailers, food and beverage purveyors, and urban office concept alongside the Maven Hotel. Dairy Block, a distinctly crafted destination found. Hey, welcome back to AF Fireside. We are closing out our outdoor series today with a special guest, uh, my boss, Mark Bullman. <laughs> Mark's the founder of American Field, but also the founder of Ball and Buck, a really cool kind of men's heritage, sportswear, hunting aesthetic here. Uh, man, how, I don't, you're going to be better at summing it up in a word or two, but uh, I figured this was a great way to end this series and talking to a true outdoorsman and the way that you build products that are suited for any adventure. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Lucas. Great to be here. Excited to, to chat for a little bit and uh, talk ball and buck. For sure. So I did a pretty piss poor job uh, summing it up. Why don't you give me the description of ball and buck in a sentence or two? Definitely. Yeah. So Ball and Buck is a sporting lifestyle brand that's focused on making the highest quality products in the world. Uh, and we do that by thinking about products like a farm to table restaurant thinks about their food. We know the suppliers, we know the ingredients. Uh, we test things. We make sure it's the best before consumers ever see it in the market. Very cool. I like that farm to table analogy. I feel like that's super appropriate and relevant. Um, for you, you know, knowing knowing you personally and knowing your interest in kind of farm to table hunt hunting to you know eating the animal thing, I don't know a ton about, but uh, I feel like that's an analogy. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'm sure that's an analogy that you could you could stretch to fit a lot of other brands that are in our our universe as well. Um, maybe a quick second, you know, you could you could give us the history of Ball and Buck and kind of where AF falls into that as well. Yeah, definitely. So I actually founded Ball and Buck as a sophomore in college. Um, back then, we were doing t-shirts with pockets on them. So we were driving out to a local tailor. I was in college in Boston in a nearby town and bringing fabric and little t-shirts and sewing on pockets. Um, and that wasn't because that was the vision for product. That was because making t-shirts was affordable and making denim and button downs and wax cotton jackets was simply not. Um, so I ran that for a few years into college. I graduated, worked in a tech startup in Cambridge for a couple of years. That company went public and then I went full time into Ball and Buck. Um, in the midst of that, we were in the North End in our little store in the North End, which is not a shopping district, um, where I was building walls and meeting with buyers and doing all these things at lunch breaks and after work. and. Um, Essentially, we got traction. We were lucky. Um, from that point forward, we moved to Newbury Street, which is a much more fashion kind of shopping forward district and opened a store there in a downstairs pop-up space. 
uh, on a month-to-month deal, opened a barbershop, and then nothing about barbershops, but now I do, um, opened a barbershop in the store because for me, it was really important to have multifaceted experiential retail, um, and then grew that store into Best of Boston, and Best Barbershop in the World, and um, did a bunch of really fun collaborations and, and built out a head-to-toe product line, um, leveraging tools like Kickstarter and community crowdfunding platforms. Uh, the American Field Genesis came from me just having met other like-minded entrepreneurs and founders and us kind of saying, there needs to be a cool event in Boston where we all get to get together and hang out. Um, so in 2012, we just did an event in, in the south end of Boston, in the SOA Power Station, and uh, you know now we've done 40 of them. So it, it really accelerated from there. We added cities and so on and so forth. But the goal there was get cool brands together, have a chance to hang out with people that see the world the same way you do, which is really rare. Um, being kind of a retail entrepreneur, it's they're few and far between. Um, but also meet customers, make sales, and do things that you know, from an e-commerce, like building a website, that's really hard. Um, growing an e-com, pure e-com business is, is, takes a lot of capital and a lot of um, expertise, which when you're starting off is just something that most brands don't have. And so at an American Field event or two-day pop-up markets, it's like you're in the perfect environment to thrive and succeed. And, and that resonated with the brands and consumers and like, Fast forward to now, and it's you know even bigger than it ever was, and it's and it's really proven. So cool. I think I uh, I entered the American Field Ball and Buck Cinematic Universe at the Newberry Store. I'm not sure if we were there at the same time, at the same place, but I had a friend that worked there. It's cool, super cool little store. I was so so young, wearing shitty old navy jeans. Uh, feels like a totally different era. Here we are yeah. now. Absolutely. Cool. Well, uh, let's get off the same stuff that we are always talking about and let's get to the, what makes Ball and Buck what it is. Um, I'm always impressed uh, as to, to hear you talk about the way that you create products. It's a thing that I don't see. You know, we don't deal with a ton uh, in our working relationship at AF. Um, so I'm excited to hear a little bit more about your process, you know, your X step plan uh, of creating a product, right? From the idea to bringing it to market. Can you kind of tell that story? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the product creation process is, is uh, a long and, and um, intricate one. But to me and with Ball and Buck, you know, we only make products if they need to be made better. So many times in the genesis of the founding of Ball and Buck, even years before we made our first button down shirt, for example, uh, was born out of a frustration with the products I had purchased from other competitive brands in the market falling apart and failing. Um, we're not here to reinvent the wheel, we're here to make it better. Um, and so for like our wax cotton jacket, for example, like I had owned the, all the other brands, like the British brand that everyone knows, the US brand that everyone knows, uh, and those products literally disintegrated on my body within two years. And for me, that was really frustrating because I love the visual, I love the aesthetic, I love the, the, the performance factors and kind of being a good everyday, you know, wax jacket. But you know, the fact that it just falls apart and then when you call in, there's no one you can call. Uh, there's nowhere it can go. Like they're not repairing it. Uh, they're not 
replacing or fixing. It's just kind of like, okay, buy another one. And for me back then, I mean, even on a $400 jacket, it's like, that just doesn't make sense. And so the genesis in the beginning of the process for building a new product for, for us at Ball and Buck, and I think for a lot of people is either disappointment or being let down by an existing product that just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So you start with, okay, well, what of that product is good and what of it is, it is not good? Um, and take a analysis of the market and say, okay, here are the players, here's what's being made, this is what's working, this is what's not working. Then you go into pattern making. I mean, that's that's the blueprint. That's when you take a three-dimensional garment and make it into two-dimensional. Um, and so we took similar products, not the same, and said, okay, you know, I like how it fits through the body, but it's way too long or it's way too short or it's too full through the arm or it's dot, 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 right? You take, you know, you take what's there and you just work with a pattern maker who's basically a designer of 2D pattern, you know, clothing uh, to create a pattern. Once you have your master pattern, your core size, which for us is a size large, um, my size. You do. You hire a fit model. It's an actual model, um, and, and, it, and it's a different model than you'd think with uh, fashion models. It's not about you know having a pretty face. It's about having a very consistent body type build and not fluctuating your weight at all. So okay. their fit models hold their weight exactly on, which allows you to test your first prototype sample that's usually made out of like a muslin. So it's like a canvas, it's like an inner material, it's very low cost, but uh, telling fabric. Uh, You fit it on the the garment, they stand on a block, they turn, they turn, you take pictures, you pin it, you adjust it, okay, then they make another pattern. Then you do it again, then you make another, then you do it again. Once you get it to a dialed in version, then you make it in the exact fabric and spec that you're gonna make the final end. Usually you alter it again. Now you have like the final final. You take that pattern, which is typically on hard cardstock, and you alter that to being able to be made on like a marker, a digital marker. Um, there are companies that digitize these patterns. So you take your, your large, and then what you do is called grading. Grading is, is taking your large and making medium, small, extra small, extra large, double X, triple X. Then you sample all those, you test fit those, now you've got a product. Um, from that point forward, the only changes typically found are, are a few things. Number one, making a product production ready, meaning a lot of times pattern makers think of them as like bespoke one-off sculpture artists. How they're building something is going to be different than, you know, a produced at scale um, figurine you buy in a store, right? It's just, it's just different. So you tweak that slightly. You don't lose the value, but you, you make it scalable. Um, and then fit and, and, and kind of shrink. So like with a wax cotton jacket, you're not washing it. So that's not a consideration. But for a button down, a cotton, 100% cotton button down, you are. So you, you, you do shrink testing where you wash a meter by meter square piece of material and you calculate the warp and weft shrink uh, of that and then compensate that into the grade. Then you go to production. So it's a, it's a big process. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but... Um, that's kind of what goes into each product that you make. And, and right now we've done that for 85 uh, master products. So it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And it's, it's certainly <laughs> a, big, a big undertaking per product if you want to do it right. Sure. So 
and and maybe this is a question you can answer maybe it's not is that um that's like the industry standard for a, a brand the size of Allenbuck? i think it's the industry standard for every for every yeah. um the only caveat i'll say to that is, is if you start producing uh internationally there are full package and full service production houses where you say make me a shirt and you just get the sample back right. you're not in the weeds you're not learning and grinding and doing that you're just getting the sample and you say fit notes make it bigger make it smaller and then you get another sample it's mm -hmm. kind of like a black you know behind the curtain type thing we're like sure. in the curtain we're in in front of it sure. um, and i think there's value in that uh, it's certainly a much more arduous process but there i think there's value in that for sure so how does that process uh how does that process change or evolve in the case that you're collaborating with another brand on the design or production side yeah so i think for us i mean collaboration has been very integral to our brand the ballback brand from the get-go um you know our first major collaboration wasn't our first but our first major collaboration was with new balance uh, and for me, when I'm thinking about what makes a perfect collaboration partner, it's a leader in the industry, someone that makes iconic products, and someone that's very true to their values and consistent with their with their offering. Uh, New Balance isn't, you know, they aren't making hunting shoes or fishing shoes, um, but they are dedicated to and arguably are the highest quality athletic footwear brand in the world uh, and have been making goods in the US since they were founded. Um, so for me, it's okay, they have the heritage, they align on values of quality. Um, so there's value alignment and they have iconic styles like the 574. And so for me, it was no brainer. Okay, we got to do a 574. And, for, and, and in terms of like, how you build that collaboration, it's saying, all right, what's your most iconic product? What do people know you for? And then what do people know us for? And how do we make something together that we couldn't make better on our own? That's if we can check those boxes, let's make, let's do a collab. Um, from a product design and on that 574, and I think one of the, the great things about that was oftentimes, when people do collaborative products, they focus on changing everything, um, thinking that a if you don't change it, it's not a decision. But the truth is, is that not changing something is, is equally and oftentimes more uh, more of a weighted decision than making the change of, you know, at all. So, like on the five seventy four, we weren't, we didn't change the midsole, we didn't change the outsole, we didn't change the laces, we didn't change the tongue, we didn't change. The side, what we changed was the vamps and camo, the toe box and camo, and the heel counter in blaze orange. That's it. And the, and the footbed in blaze orange. Um, and that's, to me, if you look at the legacy and the history of all New Balance collaborations, it's like everyone's changing so much shit that by the end of it, it's just it's like you change it just to change it. Uh, and I think it's important to know when you need to make a change and know when you don't. Um, and so that's kind of my philosophy on collaborations is a slight tweak can be much more powerful than a full overhaul. Totally. It's pretty solid advice. Never heard that before. I like that. Um, let's bring it to the outdoors, the, the theme, theme of the month, theme of the week, whatever you want to call it. 
Um, I know you guys do a lot of field testing. Obviously, uh, the way that you test things is different than, say, uh, just a, a standard apparel brand uh, does field testing. Tell me, tell me about that. What does that process look like and what are you getting out of it? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll explain it via example of uh, a performance shooting shirt we launched last fall. Uh, it was made of a four-way stretch, moisture wicking, breathable uh, fabric that had an insert for an impact uh, pad in it. Um, phenomenal shirt, but we're creating products that are not only meant to be built, you know, to be used and abused and in the field, but also things that are meant to last a long, long time. Um, you can't engineer that, you have to test that, you have to know it's gonna work. And so what I did was we went on a trip down to Argentina and we had a group of eight people, they all had the shirt and everyone was shooting and testing and shot thousands and thousands of rounds through those products and we were able to a validate our you know our construction style works it, it, mm -hmm. it up, it's upheld but b from a flex from a you know performance standpoint it works um and so i think the the on paper you know, the business model the business plan, that gets you so far but it doesn't get you to a successful business uh, you have to just do it and so for us it's always about field testing and beating the shit out of everything we make before you ever touch it. Um, and, and I think that's something that's unique to us in the marketplace where we are the people, we are the customer that we're selling to. Um, it's not theoretically designed for something, it is designed for something and we've done that in it. And so I think field testing is a critical component of everything we make and so that's why we do it. So how do you balance, what, what you're talking about uh is very specific to the people that are using the gear or let's say the apparel athletically. What do you do to appeal to people on the aesthetic apparel side, right? Like I, I have a, a ball and buck shirt. I'm never going to shoot a gun. I might shoot a gun in it. Well, sure. But I'm probably not going to shoot a gun in it. Um, what do you, what's, what's the process there to make sure that everyone's included, even if they're not a part of the lifestyle? Yeah, I think the, the, the 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 heavy use case the heavy user of that product pushes that item to its limit mm -hmm. and the lifestyle wearer i'll i'll say uh gets to benefit from the quality testing that we've we've ensued so sure. that same shirt that you're wearing around town and having fun and you know maybe you're working on your car uh is going to upstand you know way longer than it will for someone in the field because they're beating it up every day but you you served a benefit. You know the, the idea is, if you think about it in the car, you know, like in the vehicle space, it's like we've tested this vehicle driving across the desert in a race. You're never going to see that, right? But because it can do that, the quality is so much stronger and higher uh, than if we didn't do that. And so it, it's kind of like the quality that the field requires forces us to choose high-end materials, forces us to make decisions of construction that make the product better. So that if you're not in the field, you don't have to use it in the field, but you're getting a better product um, and it's gonna last you 
so much longer than every other competitive product. And that's the feedback that we've gotten. I, I know customers that have bought our first shirt ever made and they wear it three times a week still. And this was back in like 2014 when we launched the shirt. Like name another cotton shirt that gets washed three times a week that you can just still wear. It's just, it just doesn't exist. So, it, it, but that's, that's exciting to me. So totally cool. So before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit more about the outdoors. Um, I'm sure that there are a lot of challenges. Let's preface. I come from uh, a uh, background in an organic grocery store where we would get pita picketers at the eggs every Sunday afternoon. So uh, when I think about the challenges associated with uh, having, you know, a hunting lifestyle brand, um, you know, maybe that's a different perspective, but I, I want, I'm wondering where kind of outdoor ethics, sustainability, responsibility, where does that come into play with the ball and buck ethos? And how do you, uh, how do you educate customers on your standpoint? Yeah, I think one of the least known um, things about outdoors, men and women hunting and fishing is every year, hunting licenses and outdoor purchases generate like over a billion dollars for conservation. Uh, it's the largest funder of conservation. Um, and that's because, yeah, which is wild. Like it's something like, you know, to, to date and, and, and the act is called like, um, what is it called? Let me, let me actually pull it up. Pitt, Pittman Robertson Act. So the Pittman Robertson Act basically says a percentage of every, you know, outdoor outboard motor for a boat or ammunition for shooting clays or fishing rod or fishing lure or hunt or gun goes to protecting the land. And so like something like almost $23 billion has been donated to conservation, particularly from the sales of hunting, fishing related products. So I think that's something that most people don't know. So it's a great thing to know. Um, but beyond that, the outdoor, you know, participant, the hunter, the fisher is, is such a steward for the land. Um, many times they know much more about an ecosystem and the life cycle of a population of animals or fish or whatever. Than, than, the, than the standard person. And they, they know that because they're kind of one with that population. They're learning about them, following them in the off season, hunting them in the hunting season, uh, fishing them in the fishing. But it's, it's, it's kind of like they have to know um, and they have to respect that ecosystem. And so what you'll find, and another thing that's kind of not, not really well known is, is that in there's for, for hunting and fishing, uh, particularly hunting, there's a limited season. It's not like you can just shoot something because you want to shoot it, right? There's a narrow season, like in Colorado, there's four short seasons, two week seasons, one to two week seasons where you can hunt for elk. The first season you have to draw for that, which means you apply every year. And then one year, maybe 10 years later, you get it. And you have two weeks to harvest that animal. And if you don't harvest it, you wait five more years. Uh, two of those seasons are over the counter, which means you can just go in and get the tag. Uh, but nonetheless, it, there's a very narrow time window 
and there's a requirement in terms of the age of that animal. So you're not just shooting anything to see. And those rules and laws are, are created to make sure that you're not harvesting animals that are at the end of their life uh, or at, at the beginning of their life, the ones that are at the end, right? So the ones that are pushing out and, and killing off and creating, you know, winter kills for these younger animals because they're, you know, older and more aggressive and so on and so forth. So, so it's a, it's a way that allows the ecosystem to thrive. Um, we've killed off all the, uh, you know, the majority of predator species. Like there used to be wolves all over the U S there aren't anymore. So humans play a really important role in that ecosystem. When you combine that knowledge uh, and respect of the ecosystem with the, the massive contributions to actually conserving that land, I think the big thing is, is that the outdoor community is like the best thing conservation has going for it. And so our brand is just all about promoting the knowledge and education of those kind of rights of the outdoors so that not only can we celebrate them now, but we can celebrate them for generations to come. Cool. Man, I, I learned some shit today. Did I, I didn't expect to <laughs> learn a ton. Good. Cool, man. Where, uh, where can folks listening in, stay in touch with ball and buck, learn about new stuff that's coming out and keep, yeah, keep easy. the story of the ball brand. and ball and buck.com. Just check out the site. We're on Insta. Um, but no, it's, it's a great brand and you don't have to be a hunter or fisher, as you know, to, to appreciate the quality of the product. And, uh, no, it's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's great to have a brand that focuses first and foremost on quality. Um, cause you know, you can always rely on it and, uh, yeah, great. Cool. Cool, man. Appreciate your time. Cool to talk shop about uh, a different kind of shop and learn a little bit today. We'll uh, talk again soon. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Lucas Fitz, and this is AF Fireside. To learn more about all the brands featured on the podcast, check out fireside.shopaf.co. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your streaming platform of choice. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is brought to you by The Dairy Block, a vibrant, walkable micro-district in the heart of lower downtown Denver. Experience the Front Range's most inspiring retailers, food and beverage purveyors, an urban office concept alongside the Maven Hotel. Dairy Block, a distinctly crafted destination found 